business, finance, and economics. This is Finance Fridays, real economics for real life. A very warm welcome to this special edition collaborative episode between the Finance Fridays and Junior Communist Podcasts. We are your co-hosts. First, we have the lovely Geisha, host of the Junior Economist Podcast, based in Atlanta, Georgia, in the USA. Geisha, would you like to say hello? Yes, I would. Thank you so much, Walton, for this fabulous opportunity. I am so excited to be here and as well as to do this topic. Excellent, excellent. Thanks for coming. Wow, so you're from ATL. That's like the home of some of my favorite musical artists. Like I'm talking Gucci Mane, Future, Young Thug, Lil Baby, Gunna, the Migos. Damn, what a city. But yeah, many thanks. Many, many thanks for joining us, Geisha. And uh, yeah, can't wait to get started. And then there's finally myself, Walton, from the Finance Fridays podcast based in the United Kingdom which provides a weekly take on all the biggest business, finance, and economics news stories. Um, So now at this point, you might be thinking, what is this and how did we kind of link up? Um, So I've been a fan of um, Geisha's platform, uh, Junior Connors Podcast. And one time I kind of reached out to her just to show my appreciation for the good work that she's doing. And yeah, I kind of insisted that, um, you know, when an opportunity arises, we should definitely, you know, just bump heads together and come up with some ideas to collab on something. And here, an opportunity has arisen. And here we are, Bidenomics versus Trumponomics, a, which is essentially a non-political objective compare and contrast of the Republican presidential nominees and the Democratic presidential nominees um, economic policy platform agendas and we just aim to inform the audience of the choices that american voters have this november and and if you're into that kind of thing tune in and continue to listen to this episode so to kick off with our first segment let's talk economics um we're going to need the help of our chief u.s correspondent geisha So, Geisha, you're on the ground in the U.S. What's going on over there? How has the economy performed since the last presidential election in 2016? So, wow, that's a loaded question because there's a lot of things going on over here. But one thing in which I can say, well, about three things in which I can say about Trumponomics is that it has been most notable for its tax cuts, the pressure on the Fed to keep interest rates low, and as well as the constant leverage of trading power. These measures have made investors feel bullish um, because of this psychology of adapting to America's first as Trump has constantly touted to the world. So therefore this is kind of translated into um, a high, well rather like a higher than normal Dow Jones and as well as um, a pretty, a pretty steadily rising GDP. I mean, of course, pre-COVID though. But of course, these two indicators, being the stock market and as well as gross domestic product, don't tell the whole story. 
And another thing to add is that before COVID, yes, some economics and well, rather like some economic indicators did improve up under Trumponomics, such as the unemployment rate, real GDP growth, and as well as non and as well as nominal wage. However, some things actually worsened, which included inflation and as well as real wage growth. Let's see. Okay. Um, and do you see any economic challenges going forward apart from COVID? Yes. And it's primarily the, um, the rising federal budget deficit, as mm -hmm. it is now estimated by 2021 that it'll actually be bigger than the entire U.S. economy. So that's pretty scary. Yeah, that is. Yeah. And the debt situation as well on top of that. Yeah. Incredible, incredible statistics. Uh, yeah. So given all of those challenges going forward, um, I guess I should give you um, an overview of where traditional Republican and Democrat economic stances um, are and what how they kind of view the economy as a whole. So as you might come to expect, um, Democrats and Republicans have widely different views on the economy. Um, but once they're in power, a candidate's actions don't always coincide with their party's views. That makes it difficult to determine which party is better for the economy. So let's look at Democrats. Democrats tend to gear their economic policies to benefit low-income and middle-income families. They believe that reducing in income inequality is the best way to foster economic growth. This belief is best based on the idea that low-income families tend to spend extra money on necessities, which directly increases demand. Democrats also support a Keynesian economic theory, which states that the government should spend its way out of recession. And if you want a classic example of this, it would be um, during the 1930s uh, Great Depression, President FDR passed a, a law by the name of the New Deal, which pretty much um, aimed like a public works reform agenda, which aimed to revive the economic turmoil and devastation of the Great Depression. Turning my attention over to Republicans, on the other hand, they advocate a supply-side economics policy that primarily benefits businesses and investors. This theory states that tax cuts on businesses allow them to hire more workers, in turn increasing demand and growth. Um, in theory, the increased revenue from a stronger economy offsets the initial revenue loss over time. Republicans also advocate the right to pursue prosperity without government interference. They argue that this is achieved by self-discipline, enterprise, saving, and investment. Um, this business-friendly approach leads most people to believe that Republicans um, are better for the economy. However, some research shows that economic growth is better under Democrats. Um, and, you know, there are many factors that influence how much impact a Republican or Democrat president can have on economic performance. These factors include recessions, wars, and, you know, a prior president's policies as well. Um, so at this juncture, I thought it would be 
useful to kind of gauge um, the minds of American voters. What do they care about? What are they concerned about? And since we have an actual American on the show, um, I thought it'd be interesting to get her perspective on uh, what she cares about and what concerns her. So, Gaisha, what kind of economic issues do you want to hear from both candidates and how can they inspire you? The primary economic issues in which I want to hear from them as a millennial and especially as somebody who's going to be soon taking, you know, like the next steps in life, like, you know, home ownership, marriage, and as well yeah. as stepping into my career, the primary things in which that I want to hear about is a solid plan of how we're going to bounce back from COVID-19, especially when it comes to unemployment, and as well as how are they going to foster this innovation in order to create jobs that are actually useful, instead of just, you know, considering people as being fully employed or um, rather having some type of income, even if you're just a member of like the gig economy. Another thing in which that I want to hear about is how do they plan to um, close the wage gap? And also what type of measures are, do they plan to take in order to do this? And lastly, it's just about the economy in general. And also I decided to look up some statistics from other millennials. And I actually got these from a survey from um, Ernst & Young's article. Um, it's okay. called The Millennial Economy. And based upon this, uh, upon this survey, there are some like very unique findings. And I found that a lot of millennials were concerned about some of the same things. As from their survey, um, about 78% of those who they interview were worried about good paying job opportunities in the future. 74% were, um, were worried that they won't be able to pay for their healthcare bills if they got sick. And then 79% of those who they interviewed were worried about they won't have enough money to live on when they retire. And to me, these are all factors that deal with, you know, the economy in general and also things such as job creation and unemployment. So I think that if we, have a candidate that has a plan to solve all of these foundational issues. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, like I would be more than willing to vote for them because they're investing essentially in our future. I see. Yeah. Makes, makes total sense. Interesting. Yeah. I, I like the way you brought up millennials, a key demographic in the election. Um, um, so we'll see if we have anything to provide millennials to kind of um, chew upon and, you know, um, assess um, where these uh, candidates' policies are. Um, yeah, so we'll kick us off with uh, taxes, shall we? Uh, taxes. Let's kick it off with um, the Democrats, um, with former Vice President Joe Biden. Where does he stand on tax policy. Well, Biden wants to raise the top income tax rate back up to 39.6% from its current level of 37%. And he also wants to raise the top 
corporate income tax rate to 28% from 21%. If elected, Biden will apply social security taxes to earnings above $400,000. He will tax capital gains and dividends at ordinary rates for those with annual incomes of more more than $1 million and impose a 15% minimum tax on book income of large companies. The tax rate on profits earned by foreign subsidies of US firms will also be doubled to 21%. According to the Tax Policy Center, which is like an independent body in the US that kind of um, checks out the math of all these um, all these candidates, um, they said that Biden's tax proposals will increase revenue by $4 trillion between the year 2021 and 2030. It's estimated that 93% of the tax increases will be borne by taxpayers in the top 20% of households by income. The top 1% of households will pay three quarters of the tax rise. So I think you can get the narrative there of tax rises under the Democrats. Um, What's the Republican stance on this? The Republican stance is the total opposite. As a matter of fact, Trumponomics believes wholeheartedly that tax cuts bolsters jobs and as well as wages. With this being said, the 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Act was the largest overhaul of the tax code in three decades, which estimated to have left on the table about $1.5 trillion in government revenue. But this is because when the overhaul was forecasted, well, rather, you know, most experts or rather most economists had already said that it would contribute to hundreds of billions of dollars to the federal uh, um, deficit and perhaps as much as $2 trillion over the coming decade. However, what he aimed to do, and then the justification um, behind it was, is that there was um, a permanent single corporate tax rate of 21%, which on one side of the coin, some may see this as a way to foster innovation and as well as create jobs and raise wages because you aren't taxing corporations as much as you would on their um, earnings. However, many of the tax benefits within the same Tax Cuts Act actually, um, most of the benefits that would help um, American families and as well as individuals will expire in 2025. And as well as a lot of Americans receive significantly lower tax returns than they had in previous years once this had been enacted. I mean, overall, right. depending upon your income bracket, your filing status, and as well as your deductions, you either saw this as a victory or another um, poverty trap. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. And I think a dilemma that I see um, for either of these candidates, depending on who wins and who gets to sit in that famous Oval Office, um, is how will they raise enough revenue to close the ballooning budget deficit, as you alluded to earlier, and 
to reduce the huge debt burden without harming GDP even further. Um, I just feel like both candidates need to be more transparent about who's going to be affected by their um, tax policy proposals. I mean, if you look at President Trump's with his um, tax cutting agenda, um, will everyone receive a tax cut or just the corporations and super wealthy? Uh, because he needs to raise uh, more revenue. And if you cut taxes, that kind of decreases your um, revenue base. And then similarly with Biden, um, he's advocating tax rises. Okay, but on, and he's advocating those on corporations and the super wealthy. But then are they the only ones receiving a tax rise? Um, or will everyone have to pitch in in order to, in order to supplement his, the rest of his um, agenda? Is it, um, would that raise enough revenue if you're just taxing corporations and super wealthy? And also, is it smart to raise taxes in this recessionary environment? I don't know. Um, you know, I kind of compare it to if the Federal Reserve with monetary policy, you wouldn't expect them to raise rates in this um, type of environment. So why with fiscal policy, you raise taxes? Um, yeah, some interesting like conundrums for both candidates, I feel. And I uh, just feel like they could be clearer to their electorate on how the effects of whatever they're proposing will actually come to fruition. Um, don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. It is a very complex situation. And like you said, something has to be done, but then what can be done in this type of environment? Mm -hmm. And then another thing in which I started thinking about when you said about, is it really smart to only tax the wealthy? Yeah. And I, another thing in which that came to mind was, would it be smart? Because it's like, you would not only promote more tax evasion and as well as the occurrence of shell companies or some type of you know complex schemes in which that we've seen like through the panama papers and things of that such so it's just so many things in which you have to like say okay if i do this then this will happen if i don't do this this will happen so yeah 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 interesting it's yeah classic politics isn't it so right that happens yeah yeah and yes yeah, some of the key takeaways to summarize the tax policies are you know president trump and the republicans essentially want to extend the 2017 tax overhaul for individuals uh, whereas biden will roll back those tax cuts and apply a payroll tax to those earning over four hundred thousand dollars and According to Biden's campaign, 75% of his tax hike will be borne by the top 1%. Now let's move on to, a, to another centerpiece of economic policy, and that is jobs and wages. So, Gaisha, how is President Trump aiming to um, lower the incredibly high um, unemployment rates that was um, induced by the pandemic and the recession uh, that caused. Uh, what's his plan with um, spurring job creation and um, know, boosting wages? So Trump's viewpoint on jobs and wages is quite simple, which is coined by his tagline, which is buy American and hire American. So mm -hmm. he has historically been adamant about keeping unemployment low, 
being in favor of raising the federal minimum wage and as well as creating a very solid business environment that will welcome back jobs from China, Mexico, and as well as Vietnam. He has also touted the lowest unemployment rate on record, which was steadily between about 3.5 and 3.8% before COVID. And as far as what he plans to do now with COVID um, being, you know, in front of our faces, is that his primary thing is reopening the economy. Because as you know, if, um, if producers cannot produce, that means consumers cannot consume. So therefore, that's yes. his primary focus right now. But of course, doing it with like the current precautions um, recommended by the Centers for um, Disease Control and Prevention. So, yeah. Mm. Wow. On the other hand, Biden, uh, with the Democrats, he wants to, he has this uh, motto of um, build back better. And that's essentially um, rebuilding the crumbling infrastructure of the U.S. And he wants, with this um, infrastructure plan, he wants to create millions of middle class jo jobs with um, the infrastructure initiative. Um, this involves building renewable energy infrastructure. Um, anchoring institutions and climate resilience industries. Um, it includes increasing funding for programs such as the New Markets Tax Credit and the Economic Development Administration, an agency within the U.S. Department of Com Commerce. Um, he also wants to help the manufacturing sector. He plans to do this by quadrupling funding for the Manufacturing Extension Partnership and provide tax credits for investing communities that experienced mass layoffs or the closure of a major government institution. Um, on wages specifically, uh, Biden wants to increase the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour and believes labor leaders should be involved in new trade deal negotiations. And due to the health crisis, he has proposed getting all 50 states to adopt short-time compensation programs that are fully and permanently funded by the federal government. Um, and in addition to this, um, when it comes to the labor market specifically and how those dynamics uh, move going forward, he wants to reform the temporary visa programs uh, to make sure the government is not disincentivizing recruiting workers from the US um, plus, he plans to increase employment-based green cards from 140,000 140, people per year. Um, so, yeah, but Biden's plan um, kind of encompasses all of those jobs, wages, and immigration stance into um, um, creating um, the jobs of the future through the renewable energy, on the re renewable energy front, and... Um, climate resilience industries which he believes strongly in yeah so it's funny i actually heard something in which said uh, republicans and, and as well as democrats actually agree on which is investing heavily in the manufacturing sector right yeah but uh not climate change that's uh, <laughs> right that's a contentious, <laughs> that's a contentious 
one. Uh, yeah. Um, moving on to another big topic for Americans, uh, one of the key concerns, economic concerns and issues that um, uh, weigh heavily on Americans' minds is healthcare. And as you come to expect, there's widely differing views, not only within the Republican and Democrat Party um, amongst each other, but um, you know, if you look at um, the different factions that are in those particular parties, there's dividing, there's divisions within um, within their sentiments towards healthcare. And you know, um, former Vice President Biden, he he doesn't miss an opportunity to mention that he was next to Obama when the Affordable Care Act was signed into law, and has vowed to protect and expand it. He says he will eliminate the 400% income cap on as credit eligibility and lower the limit on the cost of coverage to 8.5% of income. Instead of Medicare for all, as suggested by his more progressive rivals, uh, Biden wants to create a public health insurance option like it. He also wants to lower the eligibility age for Medicare to 60 from 65 years old. Um, his campaign has said that his plan will ensure more than an estimated 97% of Americans and cost $750 billion over a decade. It will be paid for through revenue from his capital gains reform. Uh, the cost estimation, however, was provided by the campaign last year before expanding Medicare access to younger people was suggested. Um, so yeah, um, where are the dividing lines between Biden and Trump, um, guys? Uh, where does he stand on this? So in these last four years under mm -hmm. the Trump administration, he has always wanted to appeal and replace Obamacare because he believes that it hurts American families, farmers, and as well as small businesses because of the rising costs associated with it. So such as the soaring deductibles and co-pays. Um, an example of this um, is for the fact that, you know, a lot of Americans hesitate whether or not to call 911 for an ambulance for fear of a minimum of a of a fifteen hundred dollar medical bill, so instead, a lot of Americans wow. are opting to take Ubers in order to go receive emergency treatments. So, right, and then also um, the Trump administration believes that if Obamacare is replaced, this will force at um, insurance companies and as well as for, uh, pharmaceutical companies to compete for customers with lower costs and higher quality services and as well as products. For this reason, when he first took office, he, he promised to replace Obamacare with 100 days with something as he quotes, terrific. Um, and he wanted to provide insurance for everybody. But we both know he had a very hard time doing that. Although the house did have the um, uh, majority, well, I'm sorry, like the Republicans did have the majority in the House. So yeah. when it came um, in March of 2017, he introduced new health leg legislation called the American Health Care Act, which kept 
um, and place some popular provisions of the previous Affordable Care Act. However, it took two months to pass in the House, but it was not passed in the Senate because they called it, well, rather like the Republican um, senators called it Obamacare light. Um, the only thing in which that he has been able to fully um, get through was like revoking certain amen, uh, um, um, amendments such as um, the employer mandates. And so, so far there has not been like a true appeal and replace measure. And then as of um, August of this year, he's still promising that he's working on a new deal. But right now, due to COVID, everything supersedes it right now. So. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, as, as a Brit and, you know, as Europeans as well, I think when we hear of healthcare in the US, it just makes us more appreciative of some of the stuff that we have over here because uh, yeah you guys need to sort that out so <laughs> that one out um and uh yeah just a summary of the healthcare plans there trump's budget proposes spending cuts to medicare and medicaid and biden is is opposed to medicare for all um but he wants to create a public option with that and he also wants to lower the Medicare eligibility age to 60 years old. Cool. Moving on to a topic. Uh, this one's for the millennials specifically. Uh, let's talk about student debt and education. Um, Gaisha, you know, we have two gentlemen who are two candidates who are in their seventies. Um, how can they what's trump's proposal and how is he kind of trying to relate to the millennial um demographic of the electorate what's his policies with student debt and education okay so actually trump supports student loan forgiveness through um income driven repayment plans and he actually proposed to forgive student loans for undergraduate borrowers after 15 years of payments, well, consistent payments. And this was mm -hmm. um, actually um, a five-year reduction from the previous 20 years. And also under this plan, um, your monthly payment would be as high as 12.5% as, as 12 of your income, which I would say is like the only drawback from which it was previously 10%. Um, mm -hmm is the fact that either after 20 years of having your undergraduate degree with um, consistent payments or either 25 years of having your um, graduate degree um, with consistent payments, you can actually be forgiving. But the most excited thing about this is the fact that due to COVID-19, they have completely paused federal student loan payments through an executive order for 60 days. Well, previously, but now, as of Monday, they actually just passed a mandate through the CARES Act, whereas federal student loan payments have been suspended until December 31st of this year. And the interest rates are actually set at 0%. So, although you can like relax from paying your student loan debt right now but right yeah. now may be may actually be the best time because all your payments will go straight to the principal instead of the interest as usual so 
I found that very exciting. You know, like I just got my email Monday. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can hear the excitement in your voice. Uh, um, well, on the Democratic side, since Biden is now the um, the nominee and he's um, accepted that, um, since his opponents on a yeah have dropped out, um, Biden has made his student debt plan more generous. Um, he now wants to immediately cancel a min- minimum of ten thousand dollars of student debt per person, as was originally suggested by Senator Warren. Um, Biden is also proposing forgiving all undergraduate and tuition-related federal student debt for low-income and middle-class individuals, that's those that are earning up to $125,000, who have attended public um, colleges, um, private historically black colleges, and underfunded minority-serving institutions. Um, He says this will be funded by repealing the high-income excess business losses tax cut in the CARES Act. Um, yeah. Uh, interesting enough, um, in the US, Gaisha, with um, student debt, um, when do you start paying off those loans that you've accrued um, as a student? Like, is it right after graduation or? So as far as long as you get a six month grace period, um, but like that's when you have to make your first payment. However, if you still have not found a job by then, they do have um, income-based driven plans. So I know some people pay as low as like $5 a month. Oh, I see. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I I only ask just to compare and contrast with what happens here in the United Kingdom, um, where we essentially have a policy whereby once you graduate, um, you don't <laughs> immediately start paying off your, your loans. What happens is um, if and when you find a job, that um, job has to be paying you. Um, the, there's like a threshold. So the threshold when you start paying is uh, when you start earning £25,000 or more. And let's say you have a career span of, of like 30 years, I believe it is, and you do not over those 30 years earn anything at 25,000 pounds or above, the government essentially gives up on you and forgives your debt afterwards. So yeah, um, I don't know which plan is better, but yeah, that's kind of just a compare and contrast with that one, um, with how Europeans and the US operate. So I do have a question for you. Do you think that um, because of the loan forgiveness policy, if you don't find um, full employment, do you think that this would incentivize for people who have degrees to not work or in some cases to forge their income or to make money up under the table? So what are your thoughts? Uh, Yeah, Uh, I think from a logical standpoint, if I've been to university or college and I spent all this time and effort into my studies, then once I graduate, then I want to earn kind of like a return on that, on that investment um, and as large a return as I want. So I don't think that comes into mind um, from a logical standpoint. Um, But you mentioned um, people kind of underwriting what they actually earn and kind of 
let's let's call it what it is um lying to the authorities that could come into it i guess um but uh i haven't heard of any cases like that but yeah um it's an interesting viewpoint um does that happen in the u.s um not that i know of because you know with like our student loan providers is like one of those things where either you're gonna pay or you're gonna pay and if you decide <laughs> yeah. that you don't want to pay they will literally call you continuously unless you of course like change your number or something like that but no it's more so like you're gonna pay and i'm not sure if they have the right to like um garnish your wages but yeah so sometimes they will resort to those measures too like it's no type of like you know interesting yeah regardless of if you're like underemployed it's like no we need our money so give it up <laughs> <laughs> interesting they're not playing games over there at no. all <laughs> no no uh yeah um that brings us nicely over to our final segment which is trade international trade um we know this is like a centerpiece this was a centerpiece <laughs> of president trump's um election bid in 2016 and he continues to um kind of drum up the beat on it for his base um and you know but biden has some interesting perspective on it as well um um as described in his article for the foreign affairs magazine uh, titled um, in an article titled why america must lead again Biden plans to help America's position in the global economy by investing at home in innovation and the middle classes first. He promises to do this before entering any new trade agreements. He also says the best way to confront China on intellectual property and technological transfers is by forming a coalition with allies and partners, not through unilateral tariffs. So... Biden is essentially a multi, he believes in multilateralism, um, whereby you garner up a coalition of your buddies and then you use that to your advantage against an adversary. Um, in this case, it's China, um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your uh, particular viewpoint. Um, we know Trump is not too fond of China. Uh, guys, uh, what's uh, what is he proposing um, going into November? How is he um, going to tackle the issue of international trade and unfair practices, etc.? So it's so funny. I was just thinking about how Trump just has like all of these taglines for all of his um, different economic um, policies. And for this one, it's actually just an expansion of the tagline. Well, his famous tagline of America being first. And that means the expansion of his unilateralism. So previously, historically, we have seen that he has done this by imposing trade wars on U.S. allies and others alike, especially China. He has also used aggressive trading mechanisms such as tariffs and quotas on imports in order to execute his ideological standpoint. So, of course, this has caused notable retaliations which has hampered investment and increased trade tensions, especially with China, as they um, filed a formal complaint with the World Trade Organizations um, 
against the U.S. as they said that we were preventing their trade interests as it came down to solar panels and as well as washing machine um, parts. So as far as when it comes to 2020 to 2024, Trump is going to continue to expand, as I said before. And he has already shown us this year, such as how when he decided to you know, surprisingly cut all ties with the World Health Organization because he felt like the the United States was investing the most, but yet getting the least out of the deal. So mm-hmm. with that being said, you know, he is a person truly of patterns. This is just going to keep happening. And then what's, I mean, then the greatest part about it is that it'll just strengthen the U.S., as a country because we'll be more reliant on u.s manufacturers essentially because we even saw this with you know due to like the tensions with the trade war with china how we actually had shortages in medical equipment and as well as um protective equipment like when it came down to fighting COVID 19. so this is just going to be an expansion and he makes no apologies about it. Yeah. When it comes to trade. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I was just wondering um, as a US citizen, where do you stand on that narrative of, um, you know, when it comes to things like trade or defense? Um, President Trump um, usually um, kind of says that the rest of the world is essentially taking advantage of the US, um, whether it's um, China and the European Union with um, international trade or NATO with defense cooperation. Um, where are you on that um, spectrum? Um, do you do you conform to that opinion of, um, you know, the US is being ripped off essentially? Um. Not necessarily. I'm kind of on the fence because it's like, although his rhetoric sounds like good, you know, to like um, those who would just take it at the surface. But then like when you Mm -hmm. really look at the numbers, especially at the U.S. trade deficit, which has grown to over 600 billion in the past two years, despite trying to decrease it with the trade war, it's like one of those things where, you know, being sour to other countries according to the data is actually hurting us rather than helping us. So mm-hmm. I think that in order for us to not only, you know, just look good and sound good, but to also be good, it's important that America's um, like America's trade administrators actually enact policies so the data can match the rhetoric essentially so i see yeah yeah makes sense makes sense yeah and uh yeah i think it'll be interesting to see whether um biden if he is elected will revoke the tariffs enacted enacted on chinese goods um he hasn't explicitly um come out and said which way he'd go on that particular issue um and, you know, if I had a question for President Trump, it would probably be, what's the end game with the China trade war? Like, 
he's been flirting with this um, idea of decoupling from the from China, um, essentially shutting off all business with China. Um, but I don't know if that's likely or feasible. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. I think the international trade story is an issue that goes beyond the election. It's a it's a um, it's a power play of two great um, nations in the world who are all vying for as much clout as possible. So we'll see where where um, it eventually ends up and what's the end game, I guess. Yeah. And you know that particular issue of trade kind of neatly follows into our final segment, which is global impact. Um, what will be the ramifications or implications for global politics um, for international relations because as we know wherever the US goes the world tends to follow um, but you know for me I think personally this election um, and its um, effects on the world it will probably be a competition between bilat- bilateralism and multilateralism and that's the kind of the sides that you know what one of these candidates is on and we'll see where um where either of these um takes us um in relation to um the implications for for the world um how do you see it panning out Garsha? yeah so i see it um mostly similar to your viewpoint but however mm-hmm. um i think that it is important for the u.s to decouple from china because essentially when reagan took office and when he enacted policies that it i mean that encouraged american uh, manufacturers to go overseas you created china as this conglomerate and we've also enabled them to go from being this huge country of vast resources and as well as that like uh, a large amount of people to go from extreme poverty to now they're one of the highly industrialized superpowers with us within like a span of maybe only 50 to well like not even that i mean about 40 to 50 years so therefore if the u.s wants to keep its power and as well as take back its power essentially it's important that we become stronger within and not just um when it comes to things such as technology because to be honest that's like what's making us you know surpass the world is because of our investment in innovation but you know, mm-hmm. most of our food, clothing, furniture, and other things are imported in. So I yeah. think that you'll see more countries doing the same thing, especially during the COVID panic, whereas when international trade relations became quite fuzzy because of the increased, well, like, yeah, like because of like the increased demand in which that everybody saw, but yet those who were highly industrialized, unless you were China, could not meet on their own. So, yeah, yeah. that's how I see it going forward. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, 
Oh yeah, particularly I didn't mean I didn't mean control, but if um Trump comes into office, you'll see that. But as far as Biden, I think that he'll be like, Okay, look, let's just make this deal so everybody can be happy, you know. <laughs> so true. true. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh yeah, like I like we said, um this goes beyond the election itself um, and, you know, the ramifications spread to all corners of the earth. And yeah, but um, what can the American just share, man? Share the power. You know, China <laughs> wants a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> Just allow them. Sharing is caring. You know, let's all sing Kumbaya and like, just chill. I mean, I like to relate it back to like Pareto's optimality, right? Somebody has uh-huh. to dominate, you know. Somebody has to true, be in control true. of the expanding pie. And when you've all, uh-huh. and then like when you've always, you know, been in control like that, it's very hard to give up power. Because just imagine if you've always been in charge of the pie, you know, like let's say if you like peach pie and somebody who, you know, just had like the little tiny corner over there of blueberry or what have you just start Mm -hmm. taking over i'm pretty sure you have a problem too true (laughs) (laughs) you make a a compelling argument i hear that uh yeah um unfortunately that brings us to the end of this particular um program particular bidenomics versus trumponomics um and i guess we'll just close out but um any final thoughts gosha um, my final thoughts is thank you so much, Walton. I have enjoyed myself with this conversation. This has been great, and I look forward to doing it again. Of course, of course. No, thank you. Um, my final thoughts would be on the episode, specifically Bidenomics versus Trumponomics, um, with former Vice President Biden. I'm interested to see how he differentiates himself from Obama if he's at all elected um and that's a big if because the polls are showing this could be a close run thing um but yeah um i want to see how that kind of um dynamic between himself and his friend obama kind of yeah will he borrow some ideas from him i don't know um and maybe we might do another episode bidenomics versus obamanomics who knows um (laughs) and then yeah just finally oh yeah guys uh, thank you so much for being on the show um shout out to the junior economist listeners keep supporting Gaisha and her work um and yeah whenever you need some insight into any uk elections um i think the next one is in four or five years <laughs> let <laughs> me know and uh yeah you know where to find me so yeah and i have been really impressed with like your diligence from like planning to execution recording yeah you've been super dope and must be a georgia thing like whenever we're like preparing like texting or calling whatever you've just been awesome so yeah um i appreciate that and uh we hopefully can work again soon yes and also i've been so grateful for your patience and understanding and of course, your brilliance in like creating this whole thing from everything. <laughs> it's been great, Walton. Appreciate and also, that. yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was gonna say, and also I look just forward to doing it again. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know it's funny. It's so good. Um, yes, that has been it for this episode. Um, so it's goodbye from Kaisha. Goodbye. Oh, and make sure you all follow me at the Junior Economist on Instagram and Twitter. I also have a website called www.thejunioreconomist.com and I look forward to meeting all of you all. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you heard the girl. Go to her socials and uh, see what she's got coming up in the next few weeks and months and it's goodbye from me from the Junior Comics podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Well, that has been it for episode 10 of the Finance Fridays podcast. I hope that you've been informed and educated on the economic policy platform agendas of the Republican and Democratic presidential nominees for this year's U.S. general election. Be sure to subscribe for your favorite podcast provider and join me next week for part two of the Central One, I mean Bankers, segment of the podcast. And yeah, My gratitude and thanks goes to Gaisha for joining me. Hopefully we can work again in the future. Uh, Let me know. Did you enjoy the podcast? Um, uh, Hashtag Finance Fridays. And uh, who else should I collaborate with in the future? Um, Let me know your thoughts on that one. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. This is Finance Fridays signing out. Peace.